You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. I want to start out a story um, from my youth ministry days. We got a youth minister in the audience today. I won't make a big fuss of him, but uh, he's one of the first guys I met here. Uh, what a blessing. What a blessing you are, Chris. So thank you for what you do in the community and, and just your friendship. Um, it's a pleasure to have you and your family here today. Um, we're so grateful for you. Um, so I used to take students every other year to Estes Park, Colorado for a conference. And if you've never been to Estes Park, it's tucked away in a valley in the Rocky Mountains. And you wake up every morning and you just stand in awe. Like it doesn't look real. It looks storybook because it looks like a set backdrop as you gaze all around at the mountains. And even then in June and one time July, there was still snow on the peaks that you could see. And it was just incredible. Well, every year, midweek, they offered a sunrise hike to us as a group. And so we would tell our students to wake up at 4 a.m. They would, if they remembered, grab flashlights and they would meet the trail guide at the mess hall. And then once everyone got there about 4.15, they started the trek up to, I believe it was called Eagle's Bluff. It might be Eagle's Point. I'm not quite sure. And it would be a mile you'd take to hike outside the camp to enter Rocky Mountain National Park. And then you'd get to the root of the mountain. And it was two and a half miles up. And there was not a formal trail. You were taking game trails pretty much straight up the mountain with your flashlight and your tour guide, right? And if you had a tour, if, when you, the, if you stayed with the, the, the guide leader, you were much more likely to get up the trail easier, right? They knew the way. But if you were like many teenagers, like, oh, I'll do it by myself, right? They would just sprint up the mountain until you got kind of to the level area called the bluff. You were much more likely to step on a bear or run into a moose, if that was the case, which both are equally as terrifying in the Rocky Mountains. I don't know if you've ever seen a moose. Right? Wonderful. And most students would make it to the mountain, to the bluff, before sunrise. They would find a rock to sit on or another part of the bluff, and they would see the outlines of the mountains all around them. Now, it's just the outline because the stars are lighting the mountains from behind. So it's just these curvatures that roll against the sky. And when they look down to where camp should be, they could not see a thing because it was shrouded in the darkness of the mountain. And they'd sit there. And now most of them aren't from Colorado. So they don't know when the sun comes up at this time. But the woods had not stirred yet. And they would pepper that. I felt bad for that trail guide every year. They would pepper that trail guide with the same question over and over again. When will the sun come up? 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 And they would wait. And then that moment on the horizon, that movement, 
pink and orange hues would begin to pierce the skyline, and the group of teenagers got quiet, a miracle in itself. The birds would start to sing, and what were just outlines of mountains began to fill in with color. It was like watching a master artist decorate a canvas with paint. The darkness is overcoming the dawn, and the sun rises, and the camp is seen below, and you suddenly notice members of your party that you thought had slept in, and you can't help but smile. And after a few minutes, you'd make your way back down the mountain. You don't need the trail guide anymore. The flashlight sits on the back of your pocket unless you left it on top of the mountain and you and your youth pastor have to hike up later in the day to get it. But the sun lights the path. The dawning of the sun has driven away the darkness. Maybe you've had a similar experience. I hope you have. On a beach, on a lake, in the hills, from the cab of a tractor, on the early morning harvest, on a road trip east, When the light comes on, today we see, as the song we just sang said, Isaiah's great light. The light comes to the darkness, and the beginning of Jesus' ministry takes place. Please turn with me as we continue our study through the book of Matthew and look further into the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be in Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Matthew 4, 12 through 17. Please stand with me as I read God's word. Now, when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the island of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we'd ask that you would illuminate this text this morning, that you would have your very word speak to us, to challenge us, and to make us marvel at the light that has been offered to us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. We can easily break up this section into three sections. First one is just the movement of John and Jesus. The second one, it talks about Isaiah's great light. And the third one is the preaching of Jesus. And that's how we're going to move through the text today. So let's start with John and the light. Now, John the Baptist has been arrested. When in the period of the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness, the text does not give us. He'd been in the wilderness alone. But he gets word that his cousin has been taken by Herod and the leadership. 
But who is John John the Baptist? That's important. Well, we know that he is the herald of the Lord from earlier in Matthew. He's the final prophet pointing to the coming Messiah. He is the witness to the light. To point back to our hiking analogy, he was the trail guide and the flashlight that got you to where the real light could be seen. Listen to the words of another John, the dear friend of Jesus, as he opens up his gospel in one of the most beautiful ways. This is the gospel of John. See how he opens it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John, talking about John the Baptist here. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son. From the father. Full of grace and truth. The light of the world. And where does he go? Where does he go to begin his ministry? He goes into Galilee. He leaves his childhood home of Nazareth. And sets up base of operations in Capernaum. Which look from a selfish standpoint. I completely agree with this decision. I think living and doing ministry by a lake is a great decision. Great decision. Fresh fish, it's good. But why Capernaum? Why doesn't Jesus just like march into the heart of Jerusalem? Because God, the author of life and the author of the rescue mission towards all people, has set in place specific steps that he would follow long before the incarnate Christ arrived on the scene. While this section is the beginning of Jesus's earthly preaching ministry, God has been at work from the beginning. God has been at work from the beginning. We saw that throughout the opening of John's gospel. Let's Look at how he places all these pieces together in the next section of the text. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is, he's quoting Isaiah. So this takes place hundreds of years before Jesus. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. And here we're going to spend a good amount of time on Isaiah's great light. Isaiah 9 is a messianic passage that points to the coming of Christ. But I want you to notice where the dawn breaks. In understanding Isaiah 9, we can better understand our passage in Matthew 4. 
The Lord has been at work for a long time. What does Isaiah 9 say? But there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. That can also be translated the road of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, which also can be translated Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Isaiah calls Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations because there was such a large population of Gentiles that have settled there. Even in Isaiah's day, this was the case. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali was located on the northern part of Israel. Zebulun was the sixth son of Jacob and Leah, and Naphtali was the second son of Bilhah, Rachel's maid. Their land was allocated to them after the conquest of the promised land. And we know from the book of Judges, that these two tribes failed to drive out the darkness from the land, to drive out the pagans from the land. They failed. And because they had not done as the Lord commanded, the darkness, the false religions, would be a snare to the land. A spiritual battle would be waged on this land from that time forward. To the point where Isaiah knows it and Christ knows it. These tribes would be the first to fall to the Assyrian Empire during the conquest. And they would be a home of thriving cult practices. Now, I, want, I know we think of, when we think of cults today, you know, we think of so-called messiahs with dozens of wives that lives in, live in trailer parks in the middle of Texas, right? That's what we think of cults. The cults in that day were so dark. Cult prostitution, which was rampant, was a lot more about women's enslavement than it was about women's empowerment. I can promise you that. And then there was child sacrifice, which was child sacrifice. It really doesn't need any more description. It was a spiritually dark area. This part of Israel dwelt in a land where spiritual warfare was constant. The wrestling match for truth always existed in this part of Judea. And for much of the history of Capernaum, the darkness had harassed the light. And the author of the universe was so in control that he built the names of the tribes that dwelt there. Here is the irony. So names have meaning in the Old Testament. You should know this. Here are the two names given to those tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun means dwelling, and Naphtali means wrestling. Zebulun means dwelling, Naphtali means wrestling. Don't miss the irony in these names. Think about it. Think about how God would set these things in place long before the incarnation of the Messiah. The very land where Jesus would set up his earthly ministry was called dwelling. And the same land would be the spiritual battlefield leading up to the time of Christ. There was wrestling for spiritual control of the area. And this is where Jesus goes first. He goes to the darkest place. He goes to a people that Isaiah describes as sitting in darkness and overshadowed by death. I don't know if you do a lot of sitting, but when I do a lot of sitting, I'm comfortable. 
So they are comfortable in the darkness. And it is here that he begins to fulfill his earthly ministry and the promise given to Abraham, the seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations and the whole world. This is where Jesus goes. Now, most of us know the most famous verse in John 3, right? But we can't miss the rest of the passage unless we want to miss what it says about us as sinners, okay? So Jesus spells light and darkness plain after John 3, 16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We love that one. That's our bumper sticker, right? That's the tattoo we put on our ribs and that we parade around, right? We ignore the next part. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. We like that one. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. It is not, it is not that just the Gentiles lived in darkness. They loved darkness. They didn't just live in it, they loved it. When we were dead in our sin, we were the same way. We loved the darkness. Do you love the sins of this world? Do you love the sins of this world? Do you love the pleasures of this world? Or do you love the light? Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you love the world more than you love Jesus? Do you find pleasure in the commandments of Christ or do you hate them? I think this is one of the most telling things about where we stand with God. Listen to this. When your sin is exposed, do you find relief at the grace of God? Or do you wish it had stayed hidden in the dark? When your sin is exposed, do you find relief at the grace of God? Or do you wish that had stayed hidden in the dark? To put it another way, when someone calls you out on something you know to be wrong, are you grateful for their honesty or does your pride bristle at being exposed? Do you love the dark or do you love the light? You see, the metaphor of light and darkness in the New Testament is abundant. It contrasts righteousness and evil with life and death. The Bible teaches us that by nature we are children of darkness. And while Isaiah speaks of the darkness that existed in the land of the Gentiles, that land don't have a border. The darkness is bleak all over the earth. All of us by nature are people that prefer darkness to light. It is the outcome of the fall, and we fear the light. Why? This is so profound. At least it was to me this week. Because one of the greatest fears of man is exposure. One of the greatest fears of man is exposure. We do not want to be found out. 
I remember before I was saved, before I was a Christian, thinking things like, if God knew who I really was, he would want nothing to do with me. If God knew the evil that spewed from my lips every week, he would not want anything to do with me. If God knew the disposition of my heart towards others, if God knew how I lusted after women who were not mine, if God knew how often I complain, how often I curse, how often my anger overcomes me, how often I have bitter, if God only knew. If you're here today, I want to lift this burden off of you. As If you ponder the same thoughts, let me bring you into the light, okay? God knows everything. And he still moves towards you. God knows everything. And he still moves towards you. That's our God. You see, the light, the God of light, can't help but move towards the darkness. He can't help but seek to fill that space. That is his very nature. While the cycle of night and day might make it seem as though darkness and light are in an endless wrestling match, the outcome is almost, uh, sorry, the outcome is always certain. A Christian understanding of what is good and what is evil does not view them as the two sides of the same coin. We do not believe in yin and yang when we believe in good and evil. We do not believe that God has the same exact power as Satan and they're in this universal wrestling match. That is not what we believe. Evil is the absence of good, just as darkness is the absence of light. Think about it. There was no chance... Zero, zilch, nada, what rocks, dream of, what, what, what rocks dream about, right? There was zero chance that when me and my students hiked up that mountain that morning to watch the sunrise, that we would get there and the darkness would beat the dawn. Zero chance. It always works. When we come in in the morning, well, assuming when Shane gets here, because he always beats me here and it bothers me to no end. Yeah, I know. Get up earlier. I got four kids, man. Help me out. When Shane gets here in the morning and he turns on the lights, the shadows might run to the corners. But they're not wrestling with the light. The outcome is certain. You see, there's no real clash between darkness and light. The outcome is certain. When someone's converted... Others might say of them, they have seen the light. And while this phrase is typically used mockingly, the statement has profound truth because by nature, our souls shrouded in darkness have embraced Christ. The darkness rules. And when Christ is king of heaven, the Christ, when Christ the king of heaven enters our lives, the scales are removed from our eyes and the light of the world now dwells within us, and the light cannot be contained. If you've ever been converted, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've not been, you probably have no idea what I'm saying. 
If we could use an instrument to peer into your soul, what would we see? Darkness or light? You see, the dawning of the sun in our passage has come to the nations. Nations, Has the dawning of the sun come into your own life? Has the dawning of the sun come into your own life? Or is it still night? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Finally, after being reminded of Isaiah's great light, we come to the preaching of Christ. Now, what did John preach in the wilderness? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does Jesus preach as he begins his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice how Jesus doesn't begin to preach until the ministry of John was complete. And when, Herald, when, when the herald's public ministry had ended, the Messiah began his, and the message was the same. Likewise, today's preachers preach what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light of the world has come. Will you walk in the light? Or will you flee to the darkness? If you're in this room today, the light is on. How will you respond? Will you say, darkness flee, light come in? You see, the God of the universe has been at work since the, before the foundation of the world. While mankind chose to sin and bring darkness in, God of light is shining forth. First in the prophets, who were flashlights to the coming Messiah. Then in Christ himself, as he walked the earth. And now, in his church, as you are ambassadors and bring that light into our community. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, do so today. John the Apostle tells us what happens when we do. 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. You gain a family. The church. We have fellowship with one another. We complete one another. There is grace within these walls. You need not worry about being exposed. You can be known and loved here without with any of your backgrounds. That's crazy. That doesn't work in any other group. But here... To be exposed is to be brought to the light. And it's when we are vulnerable. This is proven on every level. Psychology, science, spirituality. When we are vulnerable. That's when love most greatly and profoundly works. It's when we're in the light. Why? Why? Because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin. Now we're righteous before God. Why? Because being exposed, repentance, confession are no longer scary propositions. They're life-giving ones. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we talked about um, what is the church over the summer, we ended our series by, by being reminded that the church at the end of the day should be a culture of grace. And I'm going to use that phraseology or whatever you want to call it. I just made up that word. Okay. I'm going to use that phrase regularly over the course of my ministry here because it's so 
practical, right? Being a culture of grace. Because if we're not a culture of grace, remember, if you remember from the sermon, we can unsay by our actions what we say by our words. If we can preach forgiveness all day, but we never learn to extend forgiveness and grace, then we can unsay by our actions what we, what we say by our words. And this is so true here. Church, we worship the light. And if you are saved, the very light dwells within you. And we get to extend that light into our communities. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this place being such a culture of grace, a beacon of hope in the community, that when people come in, that even though stuff is exposed, even though sin is exposed, there's not fear. There's this... Can we imagine being families, right, when our teenagers and our kids come up to us and they drive us nuts for the umpteenth time, right? And they confess sin to us. But they know they're landing in a culture of grace. Can you imagine that friend who used to be a friend, right? But now after that sin, they don't even, they don't even show themselves, right, for all the shame that they carry. But suddenly, the light of the world that resides within us, even though we know that sin exists, we still meet them in the light instead of forcing them into the darkness. Wow. That's the light of the world that we worship. Remember I said it earlier. Sorry, the text said it earlier. God knows everything. And he moves towards his people. That's weird. Think of like... As an unbeliever, I was like, you kidding me? Why would God do, do, does God know who I am? Yes. I mean, what a dumb question in hindsight, right? But like, many of us live like that. We live like practical atheists. Your God loves you. The God of light loves you. And we can be vulnerable with him. And when we are, oh, when we are, we're no longer defined by our actions, but by the actions of the Son. You see, walking with Christ in light is the most life-giving, freeing action you can ever take. For those of you that are in Christ in this room, marvel at that, that, that gift this day. Marvel at it. For those of you that have not yet, repent of your sin. Turn from it, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Surrender your life to the king and live really live today.